our series in 1 John. This is the last uh, before we do uh, transition to Advent, which will start next Sunday. Um, and we have a special treat as well coming up. Uh, the Kirks are going to visit us. They're a family serving overseas, uh, and we help sponsor them. So that will be on December 6th, I think, or the 8th. Uh, we'll be together. But for now, we're in 1 John. We'll be in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 this morning. As you turn there, let me tell you a story. It was my senior year in college, and Peg, who was a friend at the time, and some other friends, we were taking a, a, together a class, an extremely, extremely popular class, entitled Microbiology of Cancer. Now, I know from that title you're probably thinking, why would that be so popular? Why would it attract regularly 500 enthusiastic students? Well, it was the reputation, not the title, that made it popular. Not only did the class address the topic of cancer, of concern to all of us, but the professor, Albie Reiner, would bring in guest speakers who offered all sorts of alternative healing methods to combat cancer. Um, he would talk about his friends who had relationships with spiritual beings, who could levitate objects and even did so in his house. He would talk about friends who could cure cancer at times through different methods like psychic healing and other Eastern or cultic methods. So that was part of the popularity of the class. One day he brought in a spiritual medium, a person who had an ongoing relationship with a spirit guide named Genesis. Genesis had all sorts of things to say and it made for a very interesting Q&A time in class with 500 students hearing from Genesis through Genesis medium. At one point during the whole Q&A time, someone and on the other side of the classroom from me, in the back, asked a question. He said, the Bible says that Satan is able to pose as an angel of light. How do you know that Genesis is not an agent of Satan posing as an angel of light? The medium answered pretty quickly by posing her own question back to the person. Would Satan do anything good? Now, as I listened, at that point, I knew I had to say something. First, Genesis in the medium had simply restated the premise of the question itself. So it was skirting the question by restating the premise because the premise is, of course, Satan can do, and that's the whole dilemma. So how do you know the difference? But nevertheless, it wasn't time for a logic lesson. Um, I knew that there had to be some sort of follow-up, and a verse was burning in my mind at the time. It's a verse from today's passage. It says this, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So this verse was burning in my mind. So I raised my hand and just quickly mentioned that they skirted the first question, but then said this is what the Scripture says to us for how we determine we determine what the Spirit is based on what they think of Jesus Christ. So, who does Genesis think Jesus Christ is? The medium took a long pause, perhaps having a long conversation with the Spirit. I can only imagine what that was like. And the first thing out of her mouth, the medium's mouth, was this. There is no such thing as the Son of God myth. The very first thing 
was to deny Jesus Christ. And then went on to explain that Jesus was one of the masters of the universe, exceptional, an exceptional being, not God, who uh, had changed the blueprint, blueprint of the earth along with other masters of the universe. So typical New Age sort of stuff. But God's word worked just as promised. It made it crystal clear. Well, today we're going to dig into this passage. And we're going to see that the scripture calls us to be discerning. We need to discern the spirits so that we can reject the Antichrist and abide in Jesus. We are to be discerning, and this passage equips us powerfully to be discerning. So let's pray as we prepare to hear God's word. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have equipped us in so many ways to discern the spirits. This is something we needn't be afraid of. We need be anxious about, but you've equipped us, and thank you for your word, and thank you for your word today. So I pray you'd help me, Lord, to proclaim your word, to understand it, and to serve you that as we go through this, that your people would be built up, that we might discern the spirits and abide with you and represent you well for your glory. We pray in Christ's name, amen. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This passage again teaches us that we are to discern the spirits, we are to test for fraud spiritually. And we are to do that through two key means here. What they say about Christ and what they say about the church. So we'll dig into that together. What they say about Christ and what they say about the church. So we'll just go through the passage and learn that together. By the way, John has probably seven different ways to know whether someone is a genuine believer or not. And you've already seen many of those as we've gone through. And these two are two among the seven different ones. And I think, yeah, you don't have to memorize that. It's right there in 1 John, but, and I can send that to you later. But we're going to look at two of these, what they think about Christ and the, uh, what they think about the life and teachings of the church. First off, John starts in verse 1. He tells us, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. He, he warns us, don't believe everything you hear. Don't believe the spirits. Now, the spirits, he's talking about the spirits, he certainly means entities like the devil and his minions, but even what's behind different teachings, what's behind uh, the culture, what's behind different systems. It's, it's the, the whole gamut of the things that are out there, the, the, the teachings, the lifestyles. That's, that's what this applies to. So it's not just whether or not Genesis was a genuine, you know, from God, spirit from God, or an evil spirit but even how to think about culture and how to think about teachings and, and lifestyle. So we're to test the spirits. We're not to believe everything that we, 
that we see. Now, I would submit to you that Christians have a, have a natural gullibility. Um, and I think it's understandable. First, we're called to be like little children in terms of faith, right? We're not to be cynical and think, ah, oh, I can't be, unless, you know, unless I put my hand in his wounds and, and touch him, I won't believe. We're not to be like Thomas. We're to be like little children. We're to believe the best about people. That's part of what love looks like. We're to trust in the goodness and sovereign care of our Father. He's a good Father. So we're to be oriented in these ways, but these things can predispose us to gullibility. And I think perhaps that's why often so many conspiracy uh, theories seem to thrive among people of faith. But John tells us, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. There is this reality. Though the world is full of the goodness and glory of God, it also is full of fallen humanity and, and the devil and systems uh, under the influence of the devil and fallen humanity. There is evil out there. There is deception out there. There is falsehood out there. And we are to test the spirits. We are to, to examine these things. We are to look at the teachings and systems that are around us and measure them appropriately according to God's Word. And often... Often these systems are not that far off from the truth. It's interesting to see. He says, many false prophets have gone out into the world in the passage. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. False prophets would be those that are falsely proclaiming God's word. And this is in parallel with Antichrist. And we've talked about that earlier in 1 John chapter 2. Brendan brought a wonderful teaching on that. There is the Antichrist, the ultimate one who will seek to uh, usurp and oppose the reign of Christ. But there are also miniature antichrists, little antichrists, and that's really any leader, any teacher who would usurp the truth and reign of Christ is an antichrist. So there are many antichrists or false prophets. These things are to be understood as synonymous here. And, and here it says, for many pro false prophets have gone out into the world. And that parallels with 1 John 2 as well, it said, where it speaks of the Antichrist. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would, not have, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are, are not of us. And so just to understand that, that a lot of these false teachings come out of the church. They get their start in the church, but they can't stay in the church because they are opposed to God's truth. And that means that they're going to look a lot like the church. They're going to look a lot like the truth. Truth usually, or falsehood usually doesn't come across to us as blatant and ugly. That's the easiest sort of falsehood to deal with, right? Because you know, like, that's just obviously wrong. Usually it's disguised as truth. Usually there's some little twist, though, that manipulates that truth into a falsehood and causes destruction as a result. And so John is telling us, Guys, don't be gullible. Recognize that you, there are falsehoods out there and you need to test the spirits. And they're out there today just like they were in the day of, of John. I usually don't like to do this. I usually don't like to name names because I don't sit in judgment. Um, 
And I want to be humble. We want to be humble before the Lord. But I think it's important to understand some of the things that are out there. And I don't know the heart of these people, but I do know their teachings, and so we can talk about that. So to give you an example of some things that are out there that are aberrant, at least aberrant Christianity, if not opposed to Christianity, and the people behind them, let me just list a few. One, perhaps you've heard of Rob Bell, a dynamic teacher, winsome person, was a pastor, but has really denied some key truths about God, such as the final judgment, the necessity of faith and repentance in Jesus in this life, and the authority of God's words. And he may be appealing, and there's others like him that are just gifted teachers, but he has some things fundamentally wrong. The Word of Faith movement that's out there. You may not know it by that title, but it started uh, with men who were men who really made it popular, like Kenneth Copeland and Kenneth Hagin. Continues today under people like Creflo Dollar, Paula White, and even Joel Osteen. This is a false teaching that says our faith should be in our faith. That our faith is in our positive attitude. And with our positive attitude, we can create our own reality, our own success. Brothers and sisters, this is a sham. It's an illusion. It isn't true and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. No matter how hard you think things, you cannot control your reality. There's only one who controls your reality. And certainly we are to think on Him and His goodness and mercy and think positively in that sense. But your positive thinking does not create a reality. It doesn't work. I don't know how this continues. The, uh, that they continue to draw an audience because people must realize, like, it didn't work. <laughs> I couldn't think myself out of my sickness. I couldn't think myself out of my unemployment. It's a sham and illusion. It isn't true. It doesn't work. And it denies our desperate need for God's sovereign grace. It puts our dependence on our own ability to think positively but rather than God and His grace. It denies the legitimacy of suffering. In God's plan, the Bible is full of teaching on the, the role of suffering to accomplish good. And this teaching denies that. If it weren't for suffering, there'd be no redemption in Christ and new life. And it denies the adequacy of Jesus' death and resurrection and the hope to come. The Word of Faith movement. Another group that's out there that maybe is closer to home for some of us, to people who love grace, the grace of God, and, and we can never love and enjoy the grace of God enough. But I need to caution you against those who emphasize grace to the point where they deny the clear call of Scripture to live out the union we have with Christ, having died to sin and been raised to new life in Him, to holiness in Jesus. Grace has an objective. To reconcile us to God. That we might be formed by Him in the new life we have. Fully free and forgiven. We don't perform to earn anything. But because we have been united in Christ. We are dead to sin and alive to Him. And we must walk that out. It is a sign of a genuine conversion we're learning in 1 John. And so it does not help to separate grace from keeping the law. Law keeping is a way we measure the effect of grace in our lives. We don't use the law legalistically. We use it redemptively. And so we must preach the commands of God that are throughout Scripture, more commands in the New Testament under the New Covenant than the Old Covenant. And if you hear someone 
not preaching the commands of God as real obligations that are to characterize the people of God, they are teaching heresy. Often they will say that to do that is to teach the law at all is to be legalistically, inherently. You can't avoid being legalistic by teaching the law. And, and that's not what I see in my Bible. When you know the Lord and He's forgiven your sins and you know his, you're His daughter or son and you know His love and it fills your heart, you love the law like Psalm 119 says. And so there are, there are those out there some teachers who, who either are in that camp or lean that way. I haven't looked at all their teachings, but men like Joseph Prince, and I would put Tullian Chavidian in there as well. Uh, this teaching has been called hypergrace, and it's not a helpful thing in the long run. So those are some things to discern. We are called not to be gullible, not to be naive, but to discern. Now this doesn't mean, by the way, that we walk around paranoid. We walk around as heresy hunters, right? Ready to find er any heresy. Ready to pounce on anything, any misspeaking uh, the pastor might make on a Sunday. I, 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 would, I could go back with you and probably find things like, whoa, whoa. Actually, one time I remember I talked about Christ dying on the cross, and I said, God died on the cross. And like, you know, if you know theology, that's not true. God never died. Uh, there's a mystery there. Jesus died on the cross. But anyhow, I remember like, Thinking, oh no, and I think I corrected myself. Uh, but you'll find stuff in any, any pastor's preaching for any period of time. And that's not the point. Not to be heresy hunters. Not to be paranoid. Not to be worried. But neither to be naive. To be discerning. So let's live in the love of God. We're going to finish today with talking about our confidence is in the Lord. Not our discernment per se. But we are to be discerning. We're not to be naive. So John tells us that in the beginning. Beloved, test the spirits. Don't be naive. And then he goes on in verse 2 to give us the equipment, to give us uh, the one key here in verses 2 through 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And so what does that person or that teaching think about Jesus Christ? What do they believe about Jesus Christ? And the phrase is, uh, they need to confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Now that doesn't mean that there was a human being, Jesus Christ, merely. It means more than that, because his name is Jesus Christ. His name on earth was not Jesus Christ. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. That's his human name. Uh, and even that human name carries with it much meaning, because the name Jesus is actually the same name as Joshua. So his name in, in Hebrew would have been Yeshua, Joshua. And that's a, a common name, but it means God saves. God saves. And so his very name is who he is. God saves. He is God in the flesh saving us. Rescuing us. So that name Jesus proclaims even his divinity and his mission. He saves. God in the flesh saves. And his title is Christ. Christ just means king. It's not just any king though. It's the chosen king. Christ means to be anointed. And they would have anointed kings or Messiah. They're the same words. And, and so he's a king. He's Jesus king. Um, so he's not just God in the flesh saving us, but he's God over us. He's the Christ. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. So when we say Jesus Christ, those, those are the things we mean with that. 
and He has come in the flesh. He isn't just God. He is man. He didn't come as a spirit or an idea. He isn't some sort of essence of wisdom. He is God come to earth as a human being. He is fully human and fully God. He's not partially God and partially human or some other thing. He is fully God, fully human, two natures in one being. This is who He is. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. and He's come to live among us and to be like us. He's human in every way that we are. He's a normal human. He had nothing in Him to attract us to Him. So He's not even a celebrity status human. He's just a normal human. In his humanity. And he went through the same sorts of things that we go through. He had to obey his parents. He got hungry. He got tired. He got tempted to be moody. Maybe when he didn't have food. He got hangry perhaps. Or was tempted that way at least. He was tempted in every way that we are. Yet was without sin. He's fully human. He has come in the flesh. He's been here with us. He's lived a real human life. God came to earth as a human being, was born as a baby, grew up in a family, did the same sorts of things that we do. Knows what it is to be human. He identified with us. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That's what that means. There's a lot of truth just in that statement. I love, actually, by the way, how the creeds and confessions, historic creeds and confessions of the church, captured these things. Creeds are really just uh, the, the, the good ones are just a capturing of biblical truth. So the Nicene Creed, one of the earliest creeds, uh, 325, I think is the date uh, that, that they came up with the Nicene Creed, says what I just said so well. It says it this way. We can project this. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through Him all things were made for us. And for our salvation, He came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, He rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and His kingdom will have no end. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And getting this right makes all the difference. It's not okay to get Jesus wrong. It makes all the difference. If you get Jesus wrong, you get God wrong. If you get Jesus wrong, you get humanity wrong. If you get Jesus wrong, you get the gospel and salvation, and I would submit all of reality ultimately wrong. If you get Jesus wrong, you get the church wrong. If you get Jesus wrong, you will get yourself wrong. Confusion on Jesus leads to lostness and destruction. What we think about Jesus matters very much. Ephesians 4 teaches us that one of the prime responsibilities of church leaders is to build up the body in the knowledge of Jesus. Because if we get Jesus right, 
and then we build up together, we become like Jesus. We look like Jesus, and we do the work of Jesus. Getting Jesus right is oh so important. So don't be deceived. Test the spirits. Find out what they think about Jesus. Now this doesn't mean there's no truth out there if someone doesn't get Jesus right. There's truth. There's things to learn. But behind that truth, there are different motivators that will be there. And so what someone thinks about Jesus is of ultimate importance. And there's all sorts of things to be careful about. I could make a long list for you on this as well. Just take one person who's popular today, has been popular for a while, Eckhart Tolle, the influential life coach, favorite of celebrities, brilliant man, has many brilliant things to say. But at the bottom of it all is a terrible falsehood about who Jesus is. He denies that Christ has come in the flesh with a fog bank of confusion and misstatement on Jesus. The lack of clarity alone about Jesus should be a red flag to us. And he says things such as this. I think we have this to post. The very, quote, the very being that you are is truth. Jesus tried to convey that when, that when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus speaks of the innermost I am, the essence, identity of every man and woman. He speaks of the life that you are. The man on the cross is an archetypal image. He is every man and every woman. God, the scripture is saying, is formless consciousness and the essence of who you are. Sounds smart, but denies Jesus and actually promotes pantheism or panentheism, basically that we are all God and God is all. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's elsewhere too, among people we respect. Um, John Adams, the amazing founding father, got Jesus terribly wrong, along with most of the founding fathers, by the way. Most of them were not Christians. They were more Enlightenment thinkers than anything. And in letters to Thomas Jefferson, his friend, who also thought the same way, John Adams, as much as I respect and appreciate him, had some terrible things to say. He says to his friend Thomas Jefferson, Had you and I been 40 days with Moses on Mount Sinai and been admitted to behold the, the divine Shekinah and there told that one was three and three one, we might not have had courage to deny it, but we could not have believed it. He basically is saying we would have been smarter than everybody else. And then this, an incarnate God, an eternal Self-existent, omnipresent, omniscient author of this stupendous universe suffering on a cross? My soul starts with horror at the idea, and it has stupefied the Christian world. It has been the source of almost all of the corruptions of Christianity. That's John Adams. And I could find similar quotes for other founding fathers, as much as I respect and I'm grateful for them. You'll know them by what they think of Jesus. That's the first key. The second key is you know them by what they think about the church. So in verse 5, I'll skip verse 4. I want to come back and finish with that. Verse 5 says, They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So those that are false get an audience from where? From the world. And the true church doesn't listen to them. They don't gain an audience among true believers, the true church. But they get an audience from the world. They speak from the world, 
and the world listens to them, but we are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. So they don't, they don't speak in an influential way ultimately in the church. They're distinct in their teaching from the church. The church has the discernment ultimately to say, nope, we're not going to listen to that. That's not true. So they gain an audience. That's why they go out from the church, right? They, they will not succeed in the genuine church. Um, and they go out. And that's where they get their audience. So they are not part of the church. and not part of the life and teaching of the church. And that's what John's saying here. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. So the us is really important. And it's probably important for us to know who the us are, right? Because John is saying us here. That's the distinction. These guys are not of us. But who's the us for John and, and those that are here in this letter? Well, it's him, an apostle, one of the twelve, right? And it's the people in the church, the, the elders, the deacons, the people in that church together. That's the us, right? Very straightforward. There's no mystery here. Just That's what he means when he says us. You guys, me, you. Guys, I'm talking to you. That's in the letter. But does that mean we're the us? How do we know if we're the us? How do we know if they're the us? Who are the us now? How do we, how do we think through that? That's an important thing. It may sound abstract, but it's really important because we, we have to think through how do we apply this truth. And so how we define the us is really important. It's a longer conversation but it's pretty straightforward. We can look at the Word, and we can look at church history, and come up with a clear way to define the us. Let me propose a clear and helpful way that may sound strange to you at first, but it's right there in the Nicene Creed. In the confession of the Creed, we say what we believe, and we say this, we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. I would submit to you that's how we define the us. And before you run for the door, let me explain what this statement means. For many of us, hearing the word Catholic probably is the first thing. Like, whoa, what? What? What do you mean? Um, are you going to start wearing robes on Sundays? What do you mean when you say that? Well, the word Catholic predates the Roman Catholic Church by centuries. At least the, the reign of the Bishop of Rome over the Western Church by centuries. It was a word uh, that came up very early um, I think it was Ignatius, I can't remember who used it, as he talked about the church. And the word Catholic is a Greek word that doesn't, didn't connote at the time what it may connote now. It just means the whole, the whole thing, the universal church. That's what it means. And that, it was that term way before it was used by the Roman Catholic Church. And so we're not saying we believe in one holy Roman Catholic Church but we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, a universal church, a church comprised across all time, around the whole globe, of all those that are genuine believers in Jesus, that genuinely belong to Jesus. They are the church. And we believe in a universal church. In other words, we don't say we're just this, we're the church here. King of Grace is the ultimate church. All the rest, nah, just us. That should be a red flag to us. When there's a church that says, no, we got it right. And, oh yeah, the church over centuries, they don't have it right. And the church down the street, no, they don't have it right. We got it right. So we believe in a, a holy Catholic and apostolic church, a universal church. That's what we're saying. And we believe in one 
holy Catholic and apostolic church. So there aren't many churches. There are many local churches, obviously. That was true in the, in the days of the New Testament. So that's not what it's saying. It's the overall, there's only one universal church. You're either a member of Christ or not. There's not like different levels of membership in Christ. Not, you know, you're in this denomination, so you're half in Christ. You're in this denomination, you're all the way in. That's not true. You're either in or out, and you're in simply by the truth, the apostolic teaching. We'll get to that. So there's one church comprised of all that have placed their faith in the God-man who died for our sins and rose again. It's one holy church. It's precious to God. It's beloved, eternally beloved of God. It's full of eternally beloved saints who are called to be like Jesus. It's set apart from the world. It's to be radically distinct from the world in truth and love as it even lovingly and faithfully witnesses to a world that at times hates it. It's one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now this is where post-Reformation Christians divide with Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Christians. Because they would say apostolic means that it's institutionally apostolic. In other words, you can trace the, the origins of the institution back to the original apostles. But I don't think that holds up to Scripture. And Scripture is our ultimate authority, not a creed, not a statement. And as we read Scripture, we see in 1 John that, that there is a, a, an aspect of apostolic teaching that, that must be there. You, you must uphold the truth. You can say you're apostolic and not follow the teachings of the apostles. But you're not apostolic if that's the case. So the way that post-Reformation Christians understand apostolic is we submit to the teaching of the apostles, which is captured in the Word of God. So we're submitted to the Word. We're submitted to the apostolic teaching in the Word. We're submitted to the truth of the Gospel, which we see so clearly in the Word as God used the apostles. And so the Gospel must be central and it must be faithful. That's what apostolic, an apostolic church is. A church that's faithful to the Gospel and the teachings of the apostles. And has experienced that truth. And so that's how I think we define the us. And so we can say along with John and his original audience, we are the us. We have submitted to the Word of God. We are one church with the whole church. We don't see ourselves as separate somehow. All one in Christ, though we may differ on secondary things. We are one in Jesus. We are called to be holy. And we are called to submit to the apostolic teachings. That's who the us is. And so we measure heresy and, and error by conformity to the church. Do they speak in line with the church or not? And in particular, I think we go to the core things, which are well captured in the Nicene Creed. So Nicene Christianity is a good way to measure orthodoxy. And I'm glad that we as a church recognize the need to, to be part of the broader body. And so we are part of two denominations, the Baptist Association, the Baptist Convention of New England and Trinity Fellowship Churches. And I'm really glad that Trinity Fellowship Churches has chosen to align themselves with a historic confession of faith, to be careful about the us. 
And so Trinity Fellowship Churches is using a slightly modified form of the London Baptist Confession of 1689. That means it's over 300 years old. It was composed from the Westminster Confession around the same time, which is another great confession. But the difference in the London Baptist Confession is how they understand the New Covenant in relationship to the Old. There's a slight difference which leads us to practice uh, believer's baptism versus infant baptism. There are other slight differences. But this is a way to say, this is who the us is. This is who we are. And I encourage you to take time to look through the uh, Confession of Faith. You can just get on trinityfellowshipchurches.com and, and look at that. There are different sections there. Uh, some modifications because as we understand the Word, and ultimately we submit to the Word, there are some differences we arrive at, such as the gifts of the Spirit, and how we understand uh, connection among local churches, and how we understand mission. So you can read through all that. Uh, people have worked very carefully to compose those sections. These things matter. What we think matters. How we understand the church matters. Now, we don't require our members, by the way, to, to, to submit to the Confession of Faith, the Trinity a Fellowship Church's Confession of Faith, but we more or less require them to submit to the Nicene Creed because we want to make sure you're a believer, that you believe in the gospel, you believe in the God-man come in the flesh. Um, and this is a way that we protect ourselves and we identify who the us is and who's not the us and a way we can be discerning. I hope that helps. I hope that makes sense. So those two keys, Christ and the church, help us in discerning these things. Finally, let me finish quickly, with what John says in verse 4. He says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. This is wonderful encouragement from John. And it helps us remember it's not so much our ability to remember the seven things or the two keys. It's not our ability to memorize the Nicene Creed and examine people here. Do you believe all this? These sorts of things? It's not so much that. Ultimately, our confidence is in the fact that we are from God, and we have overcome the false prophets and the Antichrist, because God is in us. For He who is in you, how do we overcome? For He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. The one who is behind the false prophets and the Antichrist is no match for He who is in you. So our confidence is not in merely our discernment, Merely our ability to avoid being naive. It is in Him. He is in us. And greater is He who is in us. God Himself in us and He who is in the world. Now, the one in the world is ultimately, it's the devil. He's in the world. He's behind these false teachings. Any teaching that denies Jesus and denies the church. He's behind these things. He's at work. But, but greater is the one who is in us. That's where our confidence is. Our confidence is in Jesus and His victory. Jesus wins, and we win with Him. We get to ride on His coattails through simple faith. That's the good news. He died for our sins. He paid the penalty. He rose again on the third day, victorious over sin and death. He's your champion. He's won for you. And all you need to do simply is turn away from self-effort, turn away from your sin, and put your faith in this champion who died for you and rose again so that you might have life in you. And then you will experience the reality that greater is the one who's in you than the one in the world. 
Adrian Peterson, one of the top football running backs of all time, has the shot of being perhaps the greatest, maybe even surpassing Emmett Smith, sorry Dallas fans, for total rushing yards and rushing touchdowns. When he was in high school, he averaged 12 yards a carry. Do you know what that means? Every time he got the ball, he got a first down. 12 yards a carry. He scored 32 touchdowns his senior year. There was talk of him going from high school directly into the NFL. Can you imagine having him on your team in high school? If you're the quarterback, you're supposed to do your job, right? If Adrian's on your team, what do you do? What is your job? Give Adrian the ball. That's your job. Do your job. Give Adrian the ball. If you're a lineman, what's your job? Get out of the way of Adrian. If you're on defense, what is your job? Get the ball back to give it to Adrian. That's how you win if you're on his high school team because Adrian wins. And that's how it is with Jesus. Jesus wins. Give him the ball. Trust him. Look to him. And when you're facing times and you're wondering, I don't know what this guy is saying, I don't know what to think, say, Jesus, help me discern. Help me see. He's the one in whom we place our confidence. And if the bank could come up as we prepare to transition. So as we close, let us do all we can to identify false teaching according to what they think of Christ and the church, but let us put all of our confidence in God, in Christ, our champion. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that through your word and through these truths you preserve and keep your church. Thank you that ultimately our confidence is in you, O Lord. You are in us. And I pray you'd encourage your precious sons and daughters this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.